Well done, my good and faithful servant. Those are the words that Jesus put in the mouth of the master in his parable of the talents in Matthew 25, if you remember. And they're the words that many New Testament scholars and pastors and evangelicals believe Jesus will actually speak to us when we see him in glory and give an account of our faithfulness during our sojourn in this life. Whether he will utter those exact words, he surely will express that sentiment. And the question we should ask ourselves in the midst of this very brief study on faithfulness is this, do we live for that time and for that commendation? We should want to please Christ, beloved, more than life itself. We should want to please Christ more than we want to breathe. And when we do, faithfulness becomes the order of the day. In an effort to understand this fruit of the Spirit that Paul calls faithfulness, we looked to God's faithfulness. God is faithful, and he gave us faithfulness through the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we could be like him and represent him. How exactly we display this fruit became clear to us, I think, when we considered the ancient Near Eastern idea of stewardship, or a steward that the New Testament took and it applied spiritually to all Christians. Like the literal earthly steward, we Christians are, first of all, slaves to a master, and our master is Christ. Also, and second of all, we are entrusted with everything that we have by our master. In our case, that's everything Christ, uh, the master, uh, calls us or, or has granted to us, even our very lives. And in the third place, we, we're responsible to give an account of our stewardship, and in our case, that includes work done in our lives while on earth before God's assessment in heaven. And we'll have to give an account for how we managed his property. Did we use it for his glory, to advance his kingdom, to spread the truth, to contend for the faith, to be faithful to our individual callings and our particular stations in life. Stewardship is God, a God-given responsibility with accountability. That's really our short and brief definition of faithfulness. God's God-given responsibility with accountability. Now, as I promised at the end of our last study uh, last week, I wanted to rehearse with you four simple yet profound revolutionary presuppositions of stewardship that I know will help you to be more faithful in the way you manage what God has entrusted to your care. I have certainly benefited from, benefited from them myself. So, without further ado, let's get right to these propositions. Number one is this. God owns everything and I own nothing. God owns everything and I own nothing. Now, the first part of that presupposition is the truth that God Almighty owns everything without exception, everything. He owns it all. There's nothing that God does not have exclusive rights to, including our very lives. Let's get the sense of this from Scripture, okay? 
Genesis chapter 1 states very clearly in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created it. He owns it. Listen to what the Chronicler declares, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you do exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you do rule over all. And your hand is powerful and mighty, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. What a declaration that is. Perhaps the Psalter is the the greatest book, though, of the Bible on this theme of God's faithfulness. Psalm 50, verse 10, is representative. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And Psalm 89 Verses 11 and 12, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that it contains. You have founded them, the north and the south, you have created them. And don't forget Psalm 104, verses 24 to 26, O Lord, how many are your works in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Now, we could go on, keep going through the Bible to find similar attestations of God's sovereign rule and ownership of everything he's created. I don't think we need to, though. We've said enough to be convinced, and this is why he's called Lord. And as you might imagine, well, this theme resounds in the New Testament with Christ as Lord of all which is, by the way, a great testimony to his deity. One of the clearest passages is Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created. This is Christ we're speaking of. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who created the universe And he is the one that holds it together. Paul teaches the same truth in many of his epistles, but Romans 11.36 says it well, I think, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Beloved, God is the source, the sustainer, and the end of everything that exists. He owns everything. Okay, now consider the second part of our presupposition. I own nothing. Not one thing. I'm simply a steward of all that I have, not an owner. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says that God gave us responsibility to rule and subdue the earth. Like Adam, we represent God on earth. Adam was not to build his own empire, he was not a god wasn't representing his own interest, his own kingdom, his own agenda. And it's only when Adam and Eve tried to be gods, independent of the one true God, that they died. And the fact is that God gave Adam everything he had, a relationship with him, a divine counsel, food, a spouse, and the position as representative to rule the earth. And the rest of the Bible goes on to confirm that no one, 
has anything that God has not given him. And what God gave to Adam, he took from Job. He took from Job. But this, this presupposition was no doubt operation, operating in Job's mind, which is, is why his response to the Lord over his great loss was to bless him. Job says in chapter 1, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Bless be the name of the Lord. Amen. Would that be your response? It's no wonder that Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 falls back on this presupposition to knock the pride out of the Corinthians. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now this presupposition, God owns everything, I own nothing, is really a big hurdle for many Christians, believe it or not. It is. In the first place, it goes against the, the free American spirit, doesn't it? We're, we're just not brought up to look out for number two. Now, the world's philosophy basically leaves out God from the equation. I make my own life, I make my own destiny and my own possessions, even at the expense of others' well-being. Why should I care who gets hurt or cheated along the way? Let everyone look out for himself. Now, you might remember that this same spirit of pride characterized King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the mighty king. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it says, the king began speaking, was saying, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal resident by my might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? It was very myopic. While the words were still in the king's mouth, God declared that he would take it all from the king, including his sanity, and send him in the wilderness like an animal to eat grass until... He recognized that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. The same prideful spirit consumed Cain, although he didn't have such a great outcome. He refused the stewardship over his relationships and took his brother's life, something that didn't belong to him. And God judged him for it. It's noteworthy that both Cain and Nebuchadnezzar were, were unable to commune with others because of their pride and their selfishness. Alan Ross, in his excellent commentary on Genesis, brings this out very clearly when he says, quote, If a nation or family is to survive, the people must be responsible for the well-being of one another, end quote. The neglect of this is especially felt, I think, in the area of families and and, and specifically marriages. Dr. Stuart Scott, writing to men about how to be exemplary husbands, addressed this issue of self-interest. And he said, quote, Herein lies our biggest problem as men of this age. Pride and selfishness often stand in the way of being concerned with someone else's interests and stand in the way of recognizing that what I have is not mine. We tend to have a very strong and wrong sense of ownership about those things that we've been merely entrusted to us. When we think of the gifts of God that he has given to us, including our wives, as our own, for our own benefit, 
we may wrongly conclude that we can decide what our responsibility is and is not concerning them. We may think that we have the right to do with these gifts what we please. How important is it to acknowledge that God owns everything, I own nothing? And if you, if you agree to that, then here's the second. God entrusts me with everything I have. He entrusts me with everything I have. This second presupposition is equally vital and foundational to all that we do, and we see it operational in the lives of New Testament saints. Paul looked at his apostleship this way. He did. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 to 17, he said, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. No, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul didn't preach his own gospel. He preached Christ's. He boasted of no oratory ability. He claimed none. He believed that the proclamation of the word should be unaided by human strength. And more importantly, preaching the gospel wasn't his own idea. He was called to it. He had no choice in the matter because God set him apart sovereignly as his apostle. Well, elders are also entrusted with a flock for which they have to give an account. Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you, says the writer of Hebrews. God gives time to Christians to manage. In Ephesians 5.16, the phrase, redeem the times, which we're all familiar with, it appears there, and the word for time in this verse, in this phrase, is not the Greek word chronos, which refers to hours and minutes and seconds, but rather kairos, which refers to seasons, periods, epochs, opportunities, which means that God wants us to make the most of our opportunities, make the most of every situation in order to make an impact for eternity. Parents are solely responsible to God for bringing up their children. Ephesians 6, 4 states, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Not anyone else is to do this, least of all the state. God gives vocations to Christians to manage in a way that honors God. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily for as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And we cannot leave money out of this, right? Which is probably the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about stewardship. God gives Christians stewardship over their finances. Jesus commands his followers to pay their taxes, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 9, they both contain the New Testament giving principle, the principle to give to the church regularly on the Lord's Day 
as an act of worship, regardless of how little one has. It's a token expression of submission to God, acknowledging that all things come from him, and a declaration that we trust God will continue to provide for us until he returns. That's what we do when we give. Far from hoarding what riches the believer has, Ephesians 4.28 speaks to the importance of working hard to make money that he can give to those in need, which Paul himself modeled. This is how Christians are to use the Lord's money. Do you realize that even the very offerings that we give God on the Lord's day come from him? Oh, yes. You know that we publish in our order of worship next to offering a reminder from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 12 to 14. I don't know if you've ever taken the opportunity to read it, but these are the words of David. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Hmm. We're also responsible to render to God our reasonable worship. Don't know if you ever thought of worship as a stewardship, but it is. We saw this earlier with Job. Because he understood these two principles, he, he could respond to God with worship when the time came for God to take back what was rightfully his. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Not complained, not grumbled, but worshipped. You can be sure that when these two presuppositions are ruling the hearts of the first century saints, they show themselves to be the kind of worshippers that God seeks. So how do I understand the second presupposition then? God entrusts me with everything I have in a practical and meaningful way. Well, you might start by thinking this way of your new life in Christ. Paul assuring us that we're not our own. If you remember, we've been bought with a price, and therefore we must glorify God in our bodies. He's talking about our physical lives, not just our thought life. If this presupposition, if this presupposition claims our very lives, how much more anything that is less significant than our very lives, right? All that we have then belongs to God, and he simply entrusts us with it. And that might be a difficult concept to lock onto, especially when we work long, hard hours by the sweat of our brow, or maybe we're on a fixed income. Somehow the emotional tension and physical exhaustion, the the fruit that is born from, from it all prevent us from attributing our success to anyone other than ourselves. But God has given the increase, make no mistake. He causes some of us to prosper and others to stagnate all for his own purposes and for our good. He wants us to know that he is the source of all that we have 
that all belongs to him and that he is gracious to entrust us with a portion of it, whether a small amount that keeps us poor or an abundance that makes us wealthy. Both situations should humble us and make us content over the fact that God is giving us what we need to make us more like Christ. Our response should be that of Paul's in Philippians 4.11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. When it comes to these areas, beloved, we always need to learn how to be more content. And, And we will be content if we see that our contentment does not come from the success of these areas, but rather in the pursuing of Christ's honor in them. We need to be about his business in these areas. Let me elaborate on that. Consider how much the Christian is about someone else's business. That is the Lord's business. We preach his message, therefore we cannot keep silent and we must preach it accurately. We live his life, for to live is Christ, to die is gain. Therefore, we cannot live for ourselves. We must be holy like the one who has entrusted life to us is holy. We seek his kingdom. Therefore, we must live like citizens of that kingdom. We belong to his body. Therefore, we must love one another. We think his thoughts after him. Therefore, we must guard our hearts. We act on his authority. Therefore, we must speak the truth in love and with boldness and humility. We're saved by his work and stand in his righteousness. Therefore, we cannot boast. We live by his timetable according to his plan. Therefore, we must redeem the times. We pursue his goals. Therefore, we must be obedient. Now, closely related then to the second presupposition that God has entrusted to me everything I have is this third one. And that is, I am responsible then to increase what God has entrusted to me, not diminish it. That's my responsibility. By increase, I mean put it to use for the kingdom. Invest in the kingdom, in the advancement of the gospel, for the expansion of God's glory on earth. Faithful stewards will increase what God has entrusted to them. That's the key. Are we faithful with what God has entrusted to us? That is always the key to the Christian life. Faithfulness to God with what he has entrusted us. We we should be asking ourselves that question on an ongoing basis every day. It's a maintenance question. You see, if if we're faithful with little, then we demonstrate that we can be faithful with more. And God will grant the increase. Jesus said so himself in Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Now, those of you who have children or grandchildren, you can tell them that you have no reason to believe that they will be able to handle aspects of life that come with great responsibility if they're not responsible in the little things, like making their bed and picking up their room and washing behind their ears. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9.10 that God will supply our resources when we use them 
in a faithful way, which which in this context would be for uh, use them generously for God's concerns. Listen to the verse, God who supplies seed to the sower <clears throat> and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's talking about giving money and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, this is a context of giving. Give responsibly and give, and God will give you more to give. And no doubt Paul got this from Jesus who makes the same point in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What's he talking about? Well, this passage is really in a larger context that talks about the importance of being merciful. Verse 36, for example, sets the tone. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And we're commanded to be merciful and show mercy after the pattern of our Heavenly Father. Now, according to this context, there are two specific ways that we do that. Verse 37 says, by judging others fairly, not hypocritically, and with a forgiving disposition. Because that's how God shows his mercy to us. Paul develops that in Romans 14.10 when speaking of managing our relationships within the local church membership. He said, but you, why do you judge your brother and he's talking about hypocritically. Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, according to Luke 6.38, the second way that we show mercy to one another is in meeting the physical needs of others. Jesus calls us to give, and it will be given to you, the giver. The maxim is that God will be generous with you as you prove to be generous with others. Noted New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall says at this point, quote, the primary thought here is of the sheer generosity that we should be prepared to show in return for the immense goodness of God, end quote. Now, you can see that the motivation for being merciful to anyone is not because the person in need is kind or deserves it. No, the context speaks of being merciful to those who are actually harsh with us. No, it's, it's because God is merciful to us that we are merciful in this way of giving. We give to those in need in spite of their insults because God is merciful to us and fully trusting that God will bless our endeavors. He will supply our resource to meet the need. Final clause of verse 8, or verse 38 rather, God rewards generous giving with generous blessing. Jesus described God's generosity to us in agricultural terminology that any first century Israelite would have understood then he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. That's how God will bless you. He's referring to a common measuring jar that was filled to the brim with corn. The jar is shaken vigorously after it's filled up the first time and then pressed down in order to get rid of any air pockets and empty spaces in the jar. More corn is then poured on top 
of the full jar to the point of overflowing. So it makes this sort of mound at the top. And the overflow was caught in a long cloak that was able to be carried home. So this kind of measure that God gives to us when we generously, uh, when we give generously in his name is what we can expect. And the same principle works in reverse, really, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You remember that unlike the first two stewards, the third was unfaithful, hiding his master's talent in the ground instead of putting it in the bank to make interest for the master. His excuse in verse 24, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. His argument is essentially this. Because you're a hard, merciless, and harsh man who demands more than he has a right to, I didn't want to take a chance on losing your money though through investing it. If I, if I had lost it, you would have demanded it from me because that is the kind of person you are. So I was compelled to do nothing other than dig a hole and preserve it for you. But the truth is, the context would suggest that the master was not merciless since he carefully assessed the ability of each servant, each steward, before he gave each steward his portion of responsibility, right? The master argued, even if that were true, all the more reason why you why your behavior would have been different. You would have taken my money and at least put it in the bank so that it would be protected and gain interest at the same time. Simple truth is that this steward was more interested in himself than in the increase of the master's capital that he was entrusted with. Can you see how the principle works? We're responsible to increase what the master has entrusted to our care for his glory. Are you increasing what God has given you as he is, what he has entrusted to your care for his glory? We can either increase it or we can decrease it. The lazy and wicked steward diminished it. And the consequence was that he would not be entrusted with more, which would have been his reward, but rather relieved of his, of his responsibility. And whatever he did have was taken from him, which may imply judgment. And this last parable obviously pins down the unfaithful servant as an unbeliever. There's no question. True believers can never lose their salvation, but they can suffer loss of rewards if they prove to be unfaithful stewards with what God has entrusted to their care. Now, we looked at that last time. And that brings us really to the last presupposition. And that is God will call me to account at some time. He will call us to account. I think much is made in the New Testament about being prepared for that time when the Master calls us to account. This is what stewardship is all about, God-given responsibility with accountability, as we've seen. We already know, and we have seen from 1 Corinthians 3 and, and 2 Corinthians 5, that our Lord will someday assess our faithfulness. The Lord himself makes this promise, Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. No one knows when the Lord will come. 
or when he, he might take us to glory before he returns, no one. The question of when should not concern us, though, as faithful stewards of the Lord. It shouldn't really. As long as we're faithful, it doesn't matter when that time is because we'll be in the thick of faithful service when it does come and will not be caught off guard. Faithful stewards are always in a state of readiness. The only thing that, that the when question should do for us is motivate us to stay faithful. In light of this fact, John MacArthur urges us in his commentary in 1 Corinthians to stay faithfully busy. Quote, the day of rewards is coming. It is coming as soon as Jesus returns, for he will bring his reward with him. If we are still living on the earth, then there, there will be no time left for preparing. And if we go to be with the Lord before that time, there will be no opportunity to prepare after we die. The only time we have for doing the Lord's work that brings reward is now, end quote. As we've been saying, God will hold each believer accountable for what he's done with what he gave him. And I might add, even the unbeliever. Oh, yes. We made reference to this earlier. God commands, God's commands to be responsible is not to unbelievers, you understand, other than the, the command to obey the gospel. Only Christians have this ability to obey God's commands to be responsible, but that doesn't mean that God will not hold unbelievers accountable for their stewardship in all areas of life. Why do I say that? He most certainly will because in the end, they will discover that they have relied on their own efforts rather than trusting in Christ's work to be faithful, and they will wind up as unfaithful stewards for the Creator, and He will judge them accordingly. That's the idea. For those of us who have trusted the work of Christ, the bottom line of these presuppositions is this, knowing that God can call us to account at any time should motivate us to be alert to our surroundings and situations, to live by faith in God's promises, and to be conscientious to manage all that God has entrusted to our care. In this way, we're always ready to meet the Lord, and we will look for his coming with great anticipation. Well, at the outset of this little series on faithfulness, I gave four reasons, if you remember, for the need to know this particular fruit of the Spirit. The one that headed the list was that faithfulness is the key to success in everything we do in the Christian life. You need to know that. Faithfulness is the foundation upon which the success in ministry stands. Faithfulness. As I said, I would elaborate on this, and now is the time. As you all know, from time to time, I speak at churches, conference centers, give workshops, and I teach seminary students in various parts of the country and the world. I have to tell you that I never know what's going to happen in those places with any particular audience after I leave. I have no idea. If I'm asked back, I know that I've had a positive effect on the audience. But in those places where I speak only once, 
I have no idea what transpires after I leave. Whether the response is praise and worship or it's an uproar and chaos. I really don't know. The point I want to make here is that to me it makes very little difference how I am received. What's more important to me is whether or not God was pleased with my content, with my exegesis, with my application, with my motives, a humble delivery, and how I represented him. That's it. I have no say, no responsibility, no power over the impressions of people or how they think and act and feel. I cannot control any of that. I'm responsible for being no more than a voice for God's truth. And that's all. My contentment comes then not from how popular I am, whether I am asked back, asked back how large a crowd I can draw, but was I true to the text? Was I true to God's word? Did I represent God in my manner, in my delivery, in my content? The reason you and I should always be concerned with how God regards us more than how people regard us, saved or unsaved, is because we will not have to answer to them at the end of time. No. Never. But we will have to answer to God at the end of time. It is to Him that we have to give an account for our stewardship of our faithfulness. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we are in the body or away from it, we make it our goal to please Christ. Faithfulness is the key to a successful ministry, to a faithful and joyful life, not being, not being well-received from people or popular or stroked. If you are convinced from the Word of God that you are obedient and have His pleasure and approval, therein lies your vindication and cont- uh, validation rather, and contentment. And it will make no difference if the entire world is against you. None whatsoever. There isn't anything else that should be the gauge of our success for God in life. And the way we measure whether or not we are faithful, again, is by how we measure up with his truth. The most important thing that God calls us to be is faithful. God calls pastors to be faithful, not concerned about how to make their church bigger. God calls Christian parents to be faithful, not to manipulate their children into some mold. God calls Christian uh, parents, or or, or Christians rather, uh, 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 Christian employees, I should say, to be faithful in their work, not climbing the corporate ladder by unethical means. God calls Christian entrepreneurs to be faithful to run an honest business and not try to bend the rules or beat the system to prosper. God calls adult sons and daughters to be faithful to their parents in their old age, caring for them and not taking advantage of them or forsaking them. God calls students to be faithful to to work hard for him in the area of their studies, resisting the temptation to cheat. God calls church members to be faithful to esteem their leadership and love each other and resist the temptation to reject leadership or neglect the body by not practicing their gifts. 
God calls we Christians as true worshipers to be faithful to God in our private and public lives, in our thought life, in our spiritual disciplines, in our training of godliness, as Paul so aggressively did, that we might prove that we are not disqualified as true believers. Beloved, the test of success in our walk with Christ, in our ministry, is whether or not we are remaining faithful to Christ and to his word. That's it. Simple. Not complicated. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, very attainable. Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for encouraging us in the way with this very important word on faithfulness. And we pray, oh God, that we would be found to be faithful in your sight, faithful in your eyes, that we would indeed regard your, your word and how, you, and how you regard us more than, than how the world regards us. We pray we would fear God more than man. We, fa- we pray that we would run to the Bible as our refuge, your mind on the printed page, to know how we are to think and act, how we are to speak, how we are to even express our emotions, that we might, that we might be representing you fairly and accurately in this world. We pray we would seek to be content in the in the simple knowledge that we have your pleasure and approval. Oh God, we pray that we would strive for this so simple yet so profound and not be tempted to live by sight. We pray that we would keep our eyes on the goal and that we would strive as the saints of old did by trusting in your word and by fulfilling your commands to us for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.